0: Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. Good evening, one and all. Always a pleasure to see you back for our weekly discussions. We are a Bhagavad Gita, sixth chapter. Hare Krishna, Yaranath. Hare Krishna. Good to see you. Uh, sixth chapter, Bhagavad Gita, text 24. Saniccayena yuktafya, yogu Tankalpa pravavan ka manksva sarvanashestva manasevandriya gramam yamyasamantavaha. This is verse uh 24 of the sixth chapter. In the synonyms, a couple of words to bear in mind. Nishchaya. Uh, yoga engage with nishcha. Firm determination. This is the message of this verse. That yoga is to be engaged with full determination. And then if you come down further, sankalpa prabhavan kama, sense enjoyment, the, the renouncing, renouncing or the distancing of oneself from kama. And then indira gramam, the full senses regulating the Translation of this verse. One should engage oneself in the practice of yoga with determination and faith, and not be deviated from the path. One should abandon without exception all material desires born of mental speculation, and thus control all the senses on all sides by the mind. So having come out of this somewhat, I would say, sarcastic description of yoga, Sri Krishna is now drilling down uh, on Arjuna that if you really wish to practice yoga, don't be uh, don't be casual about it. Uh, yoga is meant to be undertaken nishtaya, with firm determination and without deviation. Not allowing the mind or the distractions of the worldly culture around us to dissuade us from yoga practice. Very important points that are being uh, underscored here. First of all, the word kama, which is fascinating. Usually, kama in the superficial sense, kama is thought of as sex or gross indulgence of the body in, uh, in sensual pleasures. Here, it, it, Sri Krishna defines kama as the, something born of false ego. So in simple language, anything that does not bring one closer to knowledge of our non-material self is considered kama. So art, education, even philanthropy and science can be kama, can be a, a material a sensual distraction and may not be situated in sattva guna or the, the the mode or uh mood of goodness. Remember that sattva of the of the three gunas, Nishaia Tri guna, as described in the Gita, Tamagunas, Rajagunas and Sattva Guna, uh, sattva or goodness is subtly positive but it's not transcendent. It's still motivated by ego. Goodness in the material sense is still with oneself at the center. So it may be a cleaner ego than something harmful or something dangerous, um, but it's still binding, binding in the sense that, according to the Gita's perspective, you have to come back again. <laughs> you have to take birth again in a material body to reap the benefits of those good deeds that you perform. So uh, it's a fascinating time just now to be tracking kama at work and uh, and i was thinking about this first i thought it would really help to have a sense of history how did we get here how did we get to be a society that focuses so obsessively on the material and so consistently ignores the spiritual how did that happen for about 10 years i was teaching at hofster university where is where i did my master's degree and that allowed me to do some reading in the work of max weber who was a 19th century german scholar Weber is credited with having invented the field of sociology. He wasn't alone in France. There was Emil Durkheim in England, Herbert Spencer. Here in the United States, W.B. Du Bois. What made Weber interesting is that he wrote about religions, and in particular, Hinduism. So he was part of a course that I taught at at Hofstra. Weber looked at the rise of capitalism and saw something interesting. He noticed that at first work and acquisition of wealth we're seen as very, very unreligious. That was seen as a, a, a bad thing, a sinful path. You may be familiar with the verse from the Bible. I think it's in Matthew that says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Well that that comes from this time in history, which ironically was at the same time as the rise of the Industrial Revolution. So what Max Weber saw was that capitalism was taking over. And how was that possible, he asked himself, in, in a religious environment. The 17th and 18th centuries were very church-centered uh, religious culture, both here in America and in, and in Europe. And he came up with an ingenious answer. He said that capitalism is not defined just as a series of transactions, but capitalism is also an attitude that transformed the definition of a God-centered universe. The new definition, born from the capitalist ethos, was that if you led your life in a proper way, with restraint, with piety, that God would reward you with good fortune. Now, at the time, this was very dramatic. It meant that believers could now plunge themselves into working very hard (laughs) and acquiring wealth and still be considered good and pious believers. So, and along with this definition of a, a good life was coming inventions. The automobile came online at the beginning of the 20th century. The birth of the oil industry which is a few years earlier on 1870. Let me again put this into some perspective for you. Let's take the oil industry as an example. In the 1870s, John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the first processors of, of oil, refiners of oil, formed his company, Standard Oil. Two years later... Rockefeller formed the Standard Oil Trust, which was a monolithic umbrella entity that housed more than 40 Rockefeller companies. And uh, by the turn of the century, by 1900, he was making 20, 25 different uh, petroleum-based products, paints, and bubble gum, and all kinds of things. And the trust quickly became the richest, biggest, and most feared business in the world. Their business practices were very draconian, and they would do heinous things to undercut the competition. Well, here's what you need to know. John D. Rockefeller taught Sunday School. His religion was a guiding force throughout his life, and he had this vision that oil had a divine purpose. He called them the underground riches, (laughs) placed by God to help establish uh, God's kingdom on Earth. Oil was, uh, the way he described it, was the bountiful gift of the great Creator.
1: Black gold, Texas tea.
0: That's it. Ding, 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 ding. Of course, Rockefeller wasn't alone in this assessment of oil as a gift from God for perpetuating God's plan of the world. After uh, World War I, there were a number of other oil barons who came along and funded um, Christian institutions. Uh, John Baylor funded Baylor University, one of Baylor University's graduates by the name of Richardson, Sid, Sid Richardson became a millionaire in the oil industry and a major, he was the money behind evangelist Billy Graham. Billy Graham's mission was funded by money from uh, Richardson oil wells. So there are some other names you might've heard of in the oil wealthy families, like the Hunts, the Latourneaux. Have anyone here, has anyone here of Oral Roberts? Another very big early televangelist, Charles Fuller. Uh, these were some of the first televangelists in America. They used their profits from oil to fund their ministries. Oral Roberts University was founded in 1965. Fuller named his company Providential Oil. There, kind of gives the show away right there. So here's the big upshot. The religious side, the God-centered side, gradually begins to disappear. And what remains is the pursuit of wealth for its own sake. So here's the logic. The logic is, okay, I'm praying to God to give me wealth, but I'm getting the wealth just by working hard and maximizing my profits. Why bother praying anymore? So Weber concluded with this rather tragic prediction. And this is a quote. He said, today, this system, meaning consumer capital culture, determines not only the life of those directly involved with business, but of every individual who was born into this mechanism and may will continue to do so until the day, now hear this, may continue to do so until the day when the last ton of fossil fuel has been consumed. Amazing prediction here. A hundred years ago, he was making this prediction that our tendency to consume and to want more and more once this blessing of approval on, uh, on accumulation of wealth has been given is unending. And he was absolutely correct. And of course, we've been dealing with the consequences ever since. And if you go back to the roots of economic theory, look at the writings of Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes, and others, they all saw work in capitalism as a means for serving the interests of humanity. The capitalist system initially, economic theory describes, was meant to make life better for people by allowing machinery to do the work so we would have more time off for pursuing spiritual practices, practicing yoga. <laughs> that, was, that was the original idea. It assumed, however, that nature was this unlimited resource that we could keep drawing down on nature Forever. And of course what happened was just the opposite, right? The system inflamed desire more and more. It was like this fire that burned hotter and hotter. And now the system no longer works for us. We work for the capitalist system. Now, if you wanted to get into this a little deeper, you could look at some of the more recent economic theorists like Milton Freeman or today at New York University, there's um, a very well known economist named Noriel Rubini who writes about this uh, eloquently. So what has all of that got to do with yoga or this verse from the Bhagavad Gita? Well, let's look at our current situation. The 13th Amendment abolishing slavery passed in 1865. So why the persistence of systematic institutional racism? Same reason. Without cultivating inner vision, without understanding that there's a part of us that has absolutely nothing to do with the sensory experiences of the body and mind, without going deeper inside an understanding of who we are and who other people are, it's impossible to avoid judging by externals. You'll, we'll always be judging people by their wealth, by their position, by the color of their skin. I like what Jimmy Fallon said, I don't wanna just be another white guy who says, let's be the change. I wanna know what the change is. That's a wonderful question. Now he didn't answer that. (laughs) He didn't answer that question, what is the change? But it's the right question. So the Gita's answer, the yoga culture answer is this, stop defining life by what you can measure. That's just the tip of the iceberg. When we think we're the body, when we think we're the physical manifestation of what's happening, the experiences that we accumulate in this life, Sooner or later, our bodies and life itself become more commodities within that system. You can see that today in factory farming and bioengineering. It's the definition of life as the physical object that is to be manipulated and exploited. And now, of course, the material self. We have bodies. We have minds. These are all part of reality. Like, for example, I'm Jewish. I'm a white male. I'm vegan. I'm a, I guess I would call myself a centrist democrat. So that's all part of who I am. It may be the external part, and therefore it's variable. For example, I I, I swear to you, I'd vote Republican if the right candidate came along. So those material labels are variable. They change. Uh, I'm Jewish. I could become something else. I could convert to something else. Those selves are variable. What is the invariable part? That's what this verse in Gita is pointing to. The unchanging common ground... Of all life, all beings, whatever their physical form, Atman, consciousness. I get on this jag with my my brother Brian all the time (laughs) that there's never been any conclusive evidence that consciousness is generated by the interaction of material particles and and wave functions and forces. There's never been any conclusive evidence to that idea. So we need to be clear about that. All this philosophy is very nice, it doesn't alleviate historic realities. I will confess to you that it wasn't until recent events that my understanding of two Americas was anything other than just theoretical. You know, that there's a white America and a black America. I think theoretically I understood that, but experientially I had no idea. I am indebted to those who are on the front line in the protests today for having driven that point home for me. So the historic realities are real. The The Gita does not condone ignoring historic realities. But not for a minute should you think that what the Gita is talking about is some kind of theoretical abstraction. Not at all. Remember, at at what happens at the conclusion of the Gita? Arjuna goes to war. He's out there marching. (laughs) He's out there protesting. That's the conclusion of the Gita. We discussed this last week that, you know, the time can come when good arguments fail and you have to take to the streets. And if you're going to do that, fine, but do it with full awareness that permanent solutions only happen with a full, deep understanding of human needs, not just the externals. You know, what's interesting about this, of course, is that you can extend this exercise of looking inside the Gita verse from a perspective of historic background. You can do that with anything. You can do that with racism in America, animal abuse, poverty. They all have their origins in historic time. None of that is endemic to life. Hatred is not endemic to life. Let me see by a show of hands, how many of you have seen this series on Netflix called Tiger King? It's all right, I won't hold you against you. You can hold your hand. <laughs> <laughs> on that series, there's Bhagavan Antil, who's a friend of mine. Bhagavan runs the Tiger's Preserve in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. What's fascinating about that place, which is a properly run private preserve, I won't go into a whole defense of what he's doing there, is that the animals are so well cared for that their predatory nature abates. They don't get up in the morning wondering, who do I have to kill to get my food today? Because they're cared for with such love and devotion by the animal caretakers there that that predatory nature subsides and other parts of their character can rise to the surface. Curiosity, room for friendships with other species, there are interspecies friendships there between tigers and dogs and birds and binturang and elephants and crocodiles, uh, animals that otherwise might eat one another. Karen, you've been there, you've seen it yourself too. It's an amazing place to go to see what's possible when the ethos, the approach to life is that the body as a housing for the divine creature living within. It's an amazing thing to see. All right, so I'm going to stop there. That's plenty to chew on. I wanted to just give some background to this 24th, 1st, and 6th chapter, which is an extraordinary one because what Sri Krishna is pointing to is this deeper dimension of the workings of society around us. The floor is open for comments, ideas, questions. Anandavilas Prabhu?
2: I was just saying this. We should see the world as a object of like a reciprocation. It's not a recreation or fun that's always which takes central place nowadays. I mean, it's the object of reciprocation. More you do good, the good will return. More you do bad, bad will return. I mean, there are good people, black community or my community, your community, white community. There are good people and always they will be the world is defined by the conflict, actually. The material world is defined by this conflict. There are different, but what I'm learning from you, see it as in state of yoga, we see everything as equal at one level. Yes, definitely.
0: Yeah, that's in Gita, Samatvam Yoga Uchate. Yeah. The goal of yoga is to achieve that ability to see beneath the surface of the material circumstances to that underlying spiritual platform
2: it's a place like reciprocation is always there I have seen that
0: it's a wonderful place to be uh, and it's possible that's the whole message of Gita you can get there uh, nishchaya with firm determination as long as you continue your practice again I talk with Brian about this you know the, the, the necessity for maintaining the practice even under extreme conditions where we can't even get together physically in the same room as we once could that steadiness of, of practice is what ultimately gives birth to the, to the, the, uh, clarification of consciousness. Just stick with it. Just keep going. Don't give up. Whatever you do, don't give up your yoga. Just keep going. It works. It does work. You <laughs> know, uh, not just from, I'll tell you from my own experience, I've been doing this for half a century. The clarification of thoughts, the ability to step outside your own certitude. I've found that happening over the course of time with chanting my mantras and practicing yoga. I don't have to be right all the time anymore. (laughs) It's fine to acknowledge that other people have their covenant with the divine. And it's, isn't it wonderful that we can all come together with our various perspectives on that? I I think I hit you with a bit too much here, but uh, I, I wanted to. It struck me that there was something important to understand about the. The fact that it wasn't always this way. I mean, what what does Bhakti say? Bhakti says that if you move past the reasons why historically we've come to this moment in time, where we're surrounded by consumerism, it it wasn't always like this. And Bhakti is hearkening back to a place within ourselves, to a place pre-modernity, when there was a greater communion between humans and nature. It was a much more everyday affair. It wasn't the exception. It wasn't one hour a week. (laughs) It was every day all the time. We've lost that. And uh, maybe this is an opportunity to remember it.
1: So this is not the Trump bashing, but I happened to see one of his speeches recently. And it's not Trump bashing because he may be the pinnacle of it in a lot of ways, but it's existed with everybody throughout recent history, just Earlier, I guess it was last week, talking about how it's a great day. You know, we're having a great day because the jobs came back, the job numbers were up. Or, you know, it's a great. There's this guy who got brutally murdered. Must be having a great day in heaven because he can see that. You know, we're doing better economically. And you know, even you know, Bill Clinton's credo was it's the it's the economy, stupid, right? And so it's like to a lesser degree, but focusing on that and it's very important. But when I hear talked about in in These really gross, uh, blatant terms, it just strikes me as so obscene that the core value is is this economic status and the the reinforcement that this is when it gets really good. The more you have, it's like that quintessential capitalist statement that somebody wrote, who who knows who it was, the one who has the most stuff at the end wins, right? what what is it what is it worth so i guess my question to you is do you have i mean i think you do do you have some conviction that by getting in touch with the atma getting in touch with our self in its true nature can assuage some of this misery that we either go through ourselves or witness that by contacting that spiritual self that is the essence of each one of us or so I read, that it provides enough perspective on things like what's going on in the world right now to a degree where I can understand it and I can somehow get my way through it with sanity, Um, purpose, and hope.
0: I don't know if this is the answer you were hoping for, but I would say no. Okay, see you. (laughs) I would say no. The the idea that we're going to practice our yoga, we're going to be spiritual, and all of a sudden the problems are going to resolve is as naive as thinking that we're just going to stoke the material fire and things are going to get better. Both perspectives are utterly dangerous and naively wrong. The necessity of the moment is to have that knowledge of oneself on the deeper level, but to use that to apply to very practical issues around us, I, I, you know, look somewhere along the line, somebody decided that if the Dow Jones goes up, it's a good day. Well, I think that's a bad day. You know, it means the material fire is just getting hotter and hotter. I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing. At the same time, I'm also aware that I live a very privileged white male life. And I'm not confronting the daily realities that other people confront. I try to be very careful about that. My own sense is that we here on this call right now and people who are a part of the yoga culture in America, they could be an extraordinarily powerful force for very practical change in the society. But I'm not sure I've met enough teachers who are capable of articulating how that would happen. I've met very few people who can actually take the yoga teachings and translate them into practical programs for social reform. I know from discussions with Brian that the yoga community is talking about this and and asking the right questions. It's a work in progress. I, I don't think there are any simple answers to what you're asking about. So a
1: follow-up question might be then, why is it important to get in touch with the Atma?
0: Well, if if you don't know who you are, how can you adjust your real self-interests? If we don't know who other people are, their true selves, how can we possibly establish an effective communication with them? If everything is based just on material circumstances, then the thing is going to break down sooner or later. You will not be able to establish you may be able to establish some short-term solutions just by legislating, just by rearranging the pieces. I don't think we're going to come to any long-term solutions there because ultimately your interests and my interests are different. If I don't see you as made of the same spiritual essence as myself, at some point we're going to come to blows. At some point we're going to have a falling out. Because yeah, it's all well and good, let's get together and help one another. But if there's scar- scarcity, or if I, I if I have to choose between me and my family and you and your family, so long. There'll be a a falling out at some point if the only element you have is material. There's a necessity for understanding the true nature of life, I think, in order to come to a lasting resolution to some of the issues we're facing today. But what that looks like, wiser minds than mine have to come up with a description. I thank you, as always, for joining in for our discussions. I will, you have my word, I will try to continually prod you and rouse you to heights of outrage and indignance every week. So please come back again next Tuesday when we will be discussing verse 25 of chapter 6. <laughs> And uh, we'll see what we can come up with. That'll be uh, fun and interesting. Thank you all very much. Wish you a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit gitawisdom.org.